the Bible, God's book, God's first book in his great book that he gives to us actually cuts through the inflation of human nonsense. That's the last time we're going to say that because we're, we've used that so much in our Genesis look that we're going to find another phrase to go into our next topic. Anyhow, Genesis. Genesis's brilliance is really that it puts God squarely in charge of all history. In Genesis chapter 49 to 50, God is going to set the stage for his kingdom come because his will will be done. So come on in. Let's check out the ending to Genesis together. channel. So glad you are here because, hey man, we just like talking God. We like doing a lot of things, but we like talking God. And truly, if we just talk God in all the things that we do, man, life would be so much better for you, me, and everybody else in the world. So that's what we're trying to get in motion here. We, we at the Publical Channel, we don't think we're the best or the brightest. We just think that uh, the Word needs to get out and people need to read their Bible well. And the Bible's meant to be read you know, like this, you know, with, with you know, someone kind of leading the way and talking about things and, and talking about things um, that we should be seeing in the reading. And then once we see it in the reading, we should be able to come away with a big picture that God has given us and feel comforted by that, because that's the aim and objective of God, is that we would find comfort in this world that is so freaking chaotic and, and crazy and mean and full of fun suckers. Anyhow, it, the Bible. And we've been looking at the first book of the Bible, but the Bible really is the only sacred text that gives a comprehensive view of history from God's point of view, the whole of history. And it's only it's also just the only religious proposition that makes real sense. Uh, the gods of the nations are just as chaotic and immoral as humans are. And even Rome and Greece's philosophers used to talk about just that point. So it's a point that's been well known and not even said by Christians. The Bible and the Bible alone has made the world that we actually know, the world that we find so much comfort in, the way that freedom works and democracies work, the whole framework of the world that we live in has actually been set on the shoulders of Christianity. It is Jesus Christ. It is God through Jesus Christ and his big book that has made this world the way it is. You know, it was the Quakers, not the Wokesters, that raised the first moral argument against slavery. And the one apostolic church that we're all part of in the Apostles' Creed, you know, has no need of slavery, just brotherly love, even for enemies, even for slaves even for prisoners, as Joseph helped us to see. But none of the temples of the old world, and I would say none of the temples even today, have ever inspired people to be moral, to be morally just, to be helpful, to be loving, to be kind, to be all these things. But that is exactly what the churches of Jesus Christ have been doing. The churches of Jesus Christ, as flawed and weird and crazy as they may seem, have always been getting the job done to inspiring people 
to a morality that flows from their relationship with God. In Genesis, God makes it clear. His kingdom, his kingdom is coming and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is the job of us Christians. And it's what we pray for and it's what we hope for. And because we hope for it and because we pray for it, we actually start making it come true in our lives and then in the lives of others around us. So this has always brought out the best in people. God, his Bible, Jesus Christ has always wrung the chamois of this life out for us to the best that we could possibly imagine. Gets the most out of us, always has, always will. Jesus is the king and he's also the kingdom. And we'll find that out. We'll talk a little bit about that as Genesis comes to a close, but both are coming. That's the Bible's guarantee. So with that in mind, let us pray like the Lord Jesus taught us how to pray, which has that in mind. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Forgive uh, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Dear Lord, this is your world. We're living in it. Help us to live the way we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right on. So anyhow, the last two chapters, we're going to do what we have done. You know, we've kind of abridged it a little bit so that we just kind of get through it and, and get the gist of it. So Genesis chapter 49 starts with Jacob corralling the sons together, the 12 sons, to hear what he has to say. Jacob called his sons, verse 49, verse 1, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So Jacob is going to, as an old guy on his deathbed, really just assemble all the sons and have something to say to them. And what he has to say to them uh, involves their current reality, who they are as people, and how their current reality and who they are as people living in the real world are going to end up shaping what God's going to do next. The 12 sons will become the 12 tribes. They will form a nation. And it is this nation that God is going to reveal his plan of salvation through. Okay, so anyhow, this is what he has to say to the sons, which, uh, well, let's just start off with Reuben, and he'll make the first point. Reuben, you're my firstborn, you're my might, you're my first fruits, my strength, my preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Aw, that's very nice, but you're unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Ouch. And anyhow, so what Jacob is going to make clear is some realities about his son's lives and how those realities of their lives will end up transferring into the future. And so Reuben has great qualities, but Reuben is such a flawed character. Um, it, even his, his capstone moment of sleeping with one of his father's, you know, maidservants, who is a wife, in order for his own mother, you know, his father's first wife, to, you know, have preeminence, you know, and so, you know, Jacob calls him out on it. He's like, Reuben, you're a good guy, but you know what? 
you're unstable as water. I love that phrase. You're, you're unstable as water, man. You shall not have preeminence now or in the future. And then he turns to Simeon and Levi. You remember those two that led the gang to uh, slaughter that town, Shechem. Um, and he says, he says them, you are brothers of violence and weapons and swords. Uh, let not my soul come into your counsel. O my glory, be not joined to your company, for in your anger you killed men. In your willfulness, you even hamstrung the oxen. Oh, boys. See, you, you, we, that episode with Simeon and Levi, um, as much as it was glorious that they were avenging their sister's, you know, justice, the, you know, her rape, you know, they were avenging that. They were also way out of line, that they were not directed by God. They were not directed by anything other than vengeance. And Jacob calls him out on it, and he says, you know what? Because of that, you know, anger, you won't be put in charge of much either, and that will follow you into the future, um, for I will divide you up and scatter you throughout Israel. All right. Um, and so the, each one of these has to do with the present reality. It also has to do with the future of, of who their people will become. Well, anyhow, uh, he now turns to Judah. And quite frankly, Judah has made great strides in the story of Jacob and the 12 sons. He has made great strides. We saw that in the last uh, couple episodes that Judah has kind of come together. He's been put together as a real man. He's taken responsibilities um, for himself and for others. Um, he's even sacrificed and been willing to sacrifice himself before others. The good stuff, you know, that we do expect to find. And Judah is told something very interesting about Judah's future. Jacob says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And that word, the peoples, is in the broadest possible shape. That means all peoples, not just Israel, the people, not just these brothers, but all peoples. And so this is a very interesting thing that is said. And I suppose, uh, you know, if that's all that was said, you know, then we should be looking forward to how this might come to fruition, because we know that Judah in his own lifetime, is not going to be the king of anything. He is at his own brother's mercy in, uh, in Egypt. Um, you know, Joseph is going to really take care of the brothers and the brothers' families because of his position in Egypt. So this idea of the king's scepter, and that's what's going on with the scepter, is, is it's, a, it's the king, it's the ruler, um, and his staff uh, between his feet, that will actually rule over the people. So, so the expectation here is that the future of Judah's line will see a king, and not just a king, but a king who will ultimately bring about the obedience of all people, not just Israel, but all people, the peoples, as he says. So that is something pointing to the future that is going to carry the weight of the story. Honestly, it's, it's David, you know, the first real king after God's own heart that, he, that God himself chooses that comes from Judah, the tribe of Judah. 
I mean, hundreds of years later, mind you, you know, like 600, you know, five, 600 years later. But David comes from the tribe of Judah. Um, and so it becomes a bit of a prophecy here. And guess who else comes from the line of Judah? That's right, Jesus Christ. So that ends up putting a line forward through the future of everything that's going to happen. Okay, so anyhow, uh, Zebulun, uh, they are going to dwell at the shore of the sea. Obviously, this does not mean real Zebulun, the man, uh, because he's going to live in Egypt with his brothers. So this is about the future. That's where he's going to occupy the promised land, and he does. Issachar is called a strong donkey that crouches between the sheepfolds. He sees resting places that are good and land that's pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor, which means essentially that Issachar, strong donkey that he is, looks for sleeping opportunities, takes the easy way out, um, and that defines, you know, his existence. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way um, that bites the horse's heels and sets the rider to fall backwards. So Dan is, well, is going to be, you know, uh, um, a fighting kind of, you know, people in the people of Israel. And then in the middle here, we get uh, uh, Jacob taking a break just to say this, I wait for your salvation. O Lord, which also gives a predictive element to the story. Jacob, as he's saying these things, makes it clear that this is all about waiting for the Lord's salvation. That also sets the story in motion. How long will it take for the Lord's salvation to come? And not to just come, but to come to all peoples. Okay, back to the uh, sons. There's Gad. Nothing special about Gad. He'll be a raider. Uh, there's Asher. He'll be rich and enjoy royal delicacies. And then Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Kind of a, a, a carefree uh, kind of spirit Naphtali will be. Um, nothing particular said there. And then all eyes focus on Joseph for a long section. And really, it's just a great tribute to Joseph and how great of a guy he's been recognizing that he really is the source of, um, you know, uh, their physical lives being rescued, um, and that, you know, Joseph really is the token of God's own heart in in all of the family. It is Joseph who, uh, you know, is the one who is truly blessed by God, and that they are reaping the benefits of, of Joseph's being blessed by God. And so Jacob confesses all of that, but it's very interesting. The future is not going to come through Joseph's tribe. No, it just isn't. Uh, the future, as far as the, you know, 11 brothers is in Joseph's hand, but the future that's way out there is not going to come out of Joseph's line. And then Benjamin is said to be a ravenous wolf, and it will prove to be uh, true that, that the tribe of Benjamin is indeed a, a vicious group. Okay, well, there you have it. You know, in, in many ways, these are blessings, but in many ways, for some of them, it's kind of an anti-blessing. Um, and, and not all of this is going to have some sort of rich connection to the future, um, 
you know, but will just work itself out in the peoples that come about out of these sons um, and out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, then Jacob dies. So in verse 28, uh, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel are now kind of set in motion and their father gathers them together once again. And he makes it very clear that he is to be gathered to his own people, that he's to be buried where Abraham is buried, where Isaac is buried, and where his wife Leah is buried, which is very interesting as far as the turn of events go, because Jacob decides not to be buried with his wife Rachel, whom he loved the most, which, you know, she got buried uh, on the journey, if we remember, by a, you know, a, a big giant tree, um, she is not buried in the family tomb, and so Jacob decides that he will be buried with Leah along with his father and along with his grandfather, um, and he makes his, his instructions very clear. This is where I am to be buried, or, or you know, that's where I'm to be placed. And so it almost seems like Jacob, you know, recognizes, um, and, and he does, he, he recognizes that what's most important is the role that he played with God um, in setting up God's plan of salvation for the whole world. It's more important for him to be laid to rest with Leah, his first wife, in the tomb where Isaac and um, uh, Abraham are buried than it is to be buried outside of that tomb with Rachel, whom he loves. So it's just, I think, a picture of, of Jacob, you know, finishing well, finishing well. And speaking of finishing well, he draws up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That is a beautiful statement. First of all, gathered to his people is definitely an indication that the Bible expects another life. Um, to be gathered to your people is, is a phrase that is, is, is just pregnant with the afterlife, that is a phrase to the that is, is, is demanding, you know, there's more than this life to come after death. But anyhow, he just, he breathes his last. I mean, if, if I have really one big request from God, and, and I have a grandfather that died um, getting ready for church. Um, he was living alone at that point in time, and he didn't make it to church. They came out to the house to see what was going on. And there he was laying in his bed in his underwear, uh, buttoning up his shirt, dead. And, and Jacob's death is, is just, I, I think it's probably what we all hope for, man, you know, right? To just die like that, to, to just to, to go peacefully. Uh, there's a song about that, just want to die peacefully. Anyhow, um, uh, Joseph's burial is, is quite the, uh, the scene. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph arranges for pretty much like all of Egypt to proceed in this uh, funeral arrangement. It, it's huge. Joseph went up to bury his father with him, went the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented with very great and grievous lamentations, uh, and they lamented for seven days. 
And it's funny, the Canaanites look down and they're like, holy cow, this guy must have been really important because the Egyptians are in mourning over this guy, who I assume they uh, just kind of took for granted, old Jacob living out there in Canaanite land. But the Canaanites are like, whoa, the Egyptians sure do see this guy as important. And then we're done with Jacob for good. Okay, so then the scene ends. And so the brothers come to... um, Joseph, and uh, they're still a little bit nervous, you know, um, uh, and and listen, guilty hearts are probably always going to be nervous for the rest of their lives, no matter what happens. Joseph has made it very clear to them that they have nothing to worry about, but they uh, kind of look around at each other, and they're like, hey, man, you know, now that dad's gone, maybe Joseph won't be so good to us, and so they kind of send this word. They're like, hey, uh, you know, uh, dad told us to make sure that you, you know, forgive the transgressions of your servants here. Um, And Joseph's like, dude, I love what Joseph says, because it really is the message of the Bible. There is one line here that gathers up the message of the Bible to you and me, and it comes out of the mouth of Joseph. And first of all, Joseph says, don't fear, for am I in the place of God? Man, that's that almost says it all. Don't fear. Am I God? Am I in the place of God? No. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke to them. And Joseph dies. And when Joseph dies, uh, as he's about to die, he says, I am about to die, uh, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Once again, Joseph ends perfectly. He lands the plane perfectly. This whole story has been not about Joseph, not about Jacob, not about Isaac, not about Abraham, but about the plan that God has for their future descendants, that God is going to let them in this land. And it's going to be 400 years that they're in this land, but they will be the continual recipient of the promise that God made to Abraham. God's will will be done. And that is really the family legacy. They understand that the most important thing is that God's kingdom comes and that God's will be done. And and it's just that simple. Uh, A lot of people make the Bible so complicated. This is the Bible. God has a plan based on the promise that he made to Abraham. That is simple. It's a plan to bring a blessing to the world. And the blessing that God is bringing to the world is going to happen. He will make sure that it happens. He will stick to his plan. He will stick to his guns. He, like Joseph just said, he will even turn the evils that we mean into his plan for good that there is no such thing as a human plan that can put a train wreck in God's plans. 
God's plans will come about. Whatever you meant for evil, God will mean for good. And that is the basis of the Christian. That is the basis of the God-fearer. Anybody who has a right mind with God knows that there's no human will that can usurp or get one over on God's will. And so there is. And of course, we're going to transition now into the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus, um, you know, carries the storyline to 400 years later, to a time when the Pharaohs, well, this Pharaoh forgot about the great uh, uh, favor that Joseph had with the Pharaohs. So it's funny, Jacob's, uh, Joseph's favor lasts for 400 years, and that causes the people of Jacob, you know, the 12 sons of Jacob and their, you know, progeny, their, their, their generations to flourish. And, and the, the book of Exodus opens up with, you know, the fact that, you know, Israel's sons have multiplied immensely. There is a multitude of people now that have come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are ready for a land. They are ready for a nation. They are ready to be a part of the promise that God had made to Abraham to bring his blessing to the whole entire world. But we'll have to save that part of the story, but Joseph sticks the landing, and he says exactly what his role is and what they are to focus on. Wait for the next part of the plan. And all that Jacob had said to the sons is still about the next part of the plan, and there's a lot more to come. The whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, it's all connected to this moment that we learn about in Genesis, that God's got a plan that he's going to develop. Okay, so what do we have so far? Since it's uh, our closing you know, uh, moment with the book of Genesis, um, the book of Genesis, rightfully seen, is, is really, uh, as I mentioned in the very opening scene, an explanation of who God is that Moses asks God at the burning bush. When Moses is at that burning bush, I don't think that Moses um, had remembered anything that we learned in Genesis. If he did, it wasn't much. And so Moses most likely had to go back to, you know, find faithful people in the life of, of Israel, in the life of the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, to find out what had been remembered. And then the other thing is, is that God ended up spending much time with Moses to get these first five books written down. So I think the ultimate assist comes from God. Moses gets this all written down because God helps him in remembering which is, you know, interesting because Jesus told his disciples, don't worry about remembering all of this. I will send my spirit to help you remember all these things. And so that has been the storyline, the storyline of knowing God properly in the midst of a world that is full of gods, the gods, uh, polytheism reigns the day with epics like Gilgamesh and all of these things are the, you know, the world in which Genesis is written to. But in Genesis, we, we get the inflation of human nonsense kicked out the door. God makes stuff from nothing. It is God who makes something from nothing. 
That's the opening scene of Genesis. I know the experts, the experts say that it's unthinkable that God could make everything from nothing. But them same experts want us to believe that it is very plausible that nothing can turn itself somehow into everything. The very definition that we get of God is that he is making something out of nothing. The definition of mankind becomes one of we make something out of almost anything. And in making something out of anything, God reveals himself as knowing what it is that we do. God knows humanity's evils, and so do we. So when the Bible walks us through our evils, it's not surprising. We know them intuitively. The Adam and Eve story, the Noah story, the Babel story, even the, the, the trials of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their family, all of this we know intuitively. And in the process, God makes it very clear that he understands humanity's evils, just like we do. So the Bible does not propose to, you know, teach us something that we didn't know, but to make it clear that we do know what we know. And what we do know is that humanity is responsible for the evils of this world, not God. And we all, we learn in Genesis, we all, everybody, used to be close with God because we're made to be close with God. And, and through all of these, you know, slow motion stories of obscure people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah, and, and all of the characters are, are just, you know, really obscure people, uh, unextraordinary people. But through those stories, we understand that God made us to be close with him and that he's very personal, and he's personally involved in small people and small things. That the overwhelming storyline of Genesis to me is that God, the God, the one and only God, is incredibly aware of you. you you're a small thing. I'm a small thing. We are all small things. And he's incredibly interested and aware of the small things and the small people. God is clear that he did not choose Abraham or Isaac and Jacob because they were good, but be, because the whole world needs redeemed. He chose them because the whole world needs a plan of redemption that only God can bring together. And this is the story of how God brings a plan together through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and eventually Jesus Christ. God is in charge of history. That's Genesis's point. God's interest in his patience with this group of rubes is simply amazing. What a motley crew. What a bag of hammers. God insists, though, that he is the God of this motley crew, that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That comes up biblically time and time and time and time and time and time again. I'm sure you can count the references, but I didn't do it. But it comes up so much in the Old Testament and even on Jesus' own lips. God is continually announced to be unapologetically the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And honestly, the rest of the world probably would be apologizing, you know, whereas God does not apologizing for being these small peoples and these small things they're God. So God's interest level and his patience in this group of rubes, 
is absolutely amazing. What a motley crew. That is part of the you know, wonderful message that Genesis brings us. And the other part of the message that Genesis brings us at the end here is that God's kingdom come. Your kingdom come, as Jesus taught us how to pray, um, is, is all about that blessing that Jacob gives to Judah, that God has a kingdom that he's going to put into history. And this kingdom that he's going to put into history is going to be from this bag of hammers, this motley crew, not because they're good. In fact, just the opposite, because they're not good, because they need redeemed. And they, they all experience the story of redemption. Despite their warts, despite their deficiencies, despite their weaknesses, God sticks with them. And of course, this all leads to the book of Exodus, which is the next book in the Bible. The story of Israel is a story that flows out of this motley crew, this bag of hammers of a family. Um, it, it's their story. And, and it's kind of like a good mother who reminds us that she brought us into the world and she can take us out of the world. God will do just that after about 1,000, 1,500 years. He brings them into the promised land. He makes them a nation, but their disobedience and their, their lack of attention to detail forces God to take them out of being a nation. And so, without being a nation, the promise of God bringing a king and a kingdom into this world through the line of Judah sets the stage for what God's going to do next. He isn't going to abandon his promise, but he's not coming to build the nation of Israel once he dismantles it. This time, he will send the king of the kingdom to come. And that king of the kingdom to come is Jesus Christ. And every one of the apostles bends over backwards to say, this is the good news. The good news of the message that starts in Genesis is that God is faithful to his promise in sending Jesus Christ, who is the king of God's kingdom. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is him that we are thinking specifically about. And then your will be done when it comes off the mouth of Joseph as, as a clear, instructive point to all of humanity, that there will be a thing called humanity's will. There will be a thing called free will. Human beings will do their best to rule their own lives, and they will make an incredible mess of it. But with every bad, God will counter with good. We want everything good and everything good, but ourselves oftentimes. But God rises above it all and makes it very clear that he will bring his goodness into this world. He is bringing his goodness into this world. That indeed he will keep raising up people that will be committed and close to him and his goodness and, and that that will change the world. And that is the reality of the world that we live in. It has been forever changed by Christianity, by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The story that God gives us in Genesis that flows straight to Jesus Christ has literally changed the face of the world. The wokesters, they haven't done anything. The wokesters are, are, are rude. 
and their ignorance of the fact that they are standing on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. It's embarrassing. But, but, we are a people who are too often hardened by our own need for contradiction. That is the human story, but God makes a promise that he will overcome that in our lives and in this world, and that his kingdom will come because his will will be done. All right, that's the end of Genesis, and it sets the stage for the great things to come. The history of God will continue in the book of Exodus straight through to the book of Revelation. Thank you.